Chapter 8, Part 2 of The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 8 Banda Oriental and Patagonia, Part 2. In Chile and Peru, more pains are taken with the mouth of the horse than in La Plata, and this is evidently a consequence of the more intricate nature of the country. In Chile, a horse is not considered perfectly broken, till he can be brought up standing in the midst of his full speed on any particular spot, for instance on a cloak thrown on the ground, or again he will charge a wall and rearing scrape the surface with his hoofs. I have seen an animal bounding with spirit, yet merely reined by a forefinger and thumb, taken at full gallop across a courtyard, and then made to wheel round the post of a veranda with great speed, but at so equal a distance that the rider, with an outstretched arm, all the while kept one finger rubbing the post, then making a demi-volt in the air, with the other arm outstretched in a like manner, he wheeled round, with astonishing force, in an opposite direction. Such a horse is well broken, and although this at first may appear useless, it is far otherwise. It is only carrying that which is daily necessary into perfection. When a bullock is checked and caught by the lasso, it will sometimes gallop round and round in a circle, and the horse being alarmed at the great strain, if not well broken, will not readily turn like the pivot of a wheel. In consequence, many men have been killed, for if the lasso once takes a twist round a man's body, it will instantly, from the power of the two opposed animals, almost cut him in twain. On the same principle, the races are managed. The course is only two or three hundred yards long, the wish being to have horses that can make a rapid dash. The race horses are trained not only to stand with their hoofs touching a line, but to draw all four feet together so as at the first spring to bring into play the full action of the hind quarters. In Chile, I was told an anecdote, which I believe was true, and it offers a good illustration of the use of a well-broken animal. A respectable man riding one day met two others, one of whom was mounted on a horse, which he knew to have been stolen from himself. He challenged them. They answered him by drawing their sabers and giving chase. The man on his good and fleet beast kept just ahead. As he passed a thick brush, he wheeled round it and brought up his horse to a dead check. The pursuers were obliged to shoot on one side and ahead. Then instantly dashing on right behind them, he buried his knife in the back of one, wounded the other, recovered his horse from the dying robber, and rode home. For these feats of horsemanship, two things are necessary. A most severe bit like the mammal key, the power of which, though seldom used, the horse knows full well, and large blunt spurs, that can be applied either as a mere touch or as an instrument of extreme pain. I conceive that with English spurs, the slightest touch of which pricks the skin, it would be impossible to break in a horse after the South American fashion. At an estancia near Las Vacas, large numbers of mares are weekly slaughtered for the sake of their hides, although worth only five paper dollars, 
or about half crown apiece. It seems at first strange that it can answer to kill mares for such a trifle. But as it is thought ridiculous in this country ever to break in or ride a mare, they are of no value except for breeding. The only thing for which I ever saw mares used was to tread out wheat from the ear, for which purpose they were driven round a circular enclosure, where the wheat sheaves were strewn. The man employed for slaughtering the mares happened to be celebrated for his dexterity with the lazo. Standing at the distance of twelve yards from the mouth of the corral, he has laid a wager that he would catch by the legs every animal without missing one as it rushed past him. There was another man who said he would enter the corral on foot, catch a mare, fasten her front legs together, drive her out, throw her down, kill, skin, and stake the hide for drying, for which latter is a tedious job. And he engaged that he would perform this whole operation on twenty-two animals in one day, or he would kill and take the skin off fifty in the same time. This would have been a prodigious task, for it is considered a good day's work to skin and stake the hides of fifteen or sixteen animals. November 26th. I set out on my return in a direct line for Montevideo, having heard of some giant's bones at a neighboring farmhouse on the Sarandes, a small stream entering the Rio Negro. I rode there accompanied by my host, and purchased for the value of eighteen pence the head of the Toxodon. When found it was quite perfect, but the boys knocked out some of the teeth with stones, and then set up the head as a mark to throw at. By a most fortunate chance I found a perfect tooth, which exactly fitted one of the sockets in the skull, embedded itself on the banks of the Rio Tercero, at the distance of about a 180 miles from this place. I found remains of this extraordinary animal at two other places, so that it must formerly have been common. I found here also some large portions of the armor of a gigantic armadillo-like animal, and part of the great head of the mylodon. The bones of this head are so fresh that they contain, according to the analysis of Mr. T. Reeks, seven percent of animal matter, and when placed in a spirit lamp they burn with a small flame. The number of the remains embedded in the grand estuary deposit which forms the pampas and covers the gigantic rocks of Banda Oriental, must be extraordinarily great. I believe a straight line drawn in any direction through the pampas would cut through some skeleton or bones. Besides those which I found during my short excursions, I heard of many others, and the origin of such names as the stream of the animal, the hill of the giant, is obvious. At other times I heard of the marvelous property of certain rivers, which had the power of changing small bones into large, or, as some maintained, the bones themselves grew. As far as I am aware, not one of these animals perished, as was formerly supposed in the marshes or muddy river beds of the present land, but their bones have been exposed by the streams intersecting the subaqueous deposits in which they were originally embedded we may conclude that the whole area of the pampas is one wide sepulture of these extinct gigantic quadrupeds. By the middle of the day on the 28th, we arrived at Montevideo, having been two days and a half on the road. The country for the whole way was of a very uniform character, some parts being rather more rocky and hilly than near the Plata. 
Not far from Montevideo, we pass through the village of Las Pietras, so named for some large rounded masses of cyanite. Its appearance was rather pretty. In this country a few fig trees around a group of houses, and a site elevated a hundred feet above the general level, ought always to be called picturesque. During the last six months, I have had an opportunity of seeing a little of the character of the inhabitants of these provinces. The gauchos, or countrymen, are very superior to those who reside in the towns. The gaucho is invariably most obliging, polite, and hospitable. I did not meet with even one instance of rudeness or inhospitality. He is modest, both respecting himself and country, but at the same time a spirited bold fellow. On the other hand, many robberies are committed, and there is much bloodshed. The habit of constantly wearing the knife is the chief cause of the latter. It is lamentable to hear how many lives are lost in trifling quarrels. In fighting, each party tries to mark the face of his adversary by slashing his nose or eyes, as is often attested by deep and horrid-looking scars. Robberies are a natural consequence of universal gambling, much drinking, and extreme indolence. At Mercedes, I asked two men why they did not work. One gravely said the days were too long, the other that he was too poor. The number of horses and the profusion of food are the destruction of all industry. Moreover, there are so many feast days, and again, nothing can succeed without it be begun when the moon is on the increase, so that half the month is lost from these two causes. Police and justice are quite inefficient. If a man who is poor commits murder and is taken, he will be imprisoned and perhaps even shot. But if he is rich and has friends, he may rely on it no very severe consequence will ensue. It is curious that the most respectable inhabitants of the country invariably assist a murderer to escape. They seem to think that the individual sins against the government and not against the people. A traveler has no protection besides his firearms, and the constant habit of carrying them is the main check to more frequent robberies. The character of the higher and more educated classes who reside in the towns partakes, but perhaps in a lesser degree, of the good parts of the gaucho, but is, I fear, stained by many vices of which he is free. Sensuality, mockery of all religion, and the grossest corruption are far from uncommon. Nearly every public officer can be bribed. The headman in the post office sold forged government francs. The governor and prime minister openly combined to plunder the state. Justice, where gold came into play, was hardly expected by anyone. I knew an Englishman who went to the chief justice. He told me that not then understanding the ways of the place, he trembled as he entered the room, and said, Sir, I have come to offer you two hundred paper dollars, value about five pounds sterling, if you will arrest before a certain time a man who has cheated me. I know it is against the law, but my lawyer, naming him, recommended me to take this step. The Chief Justice smiled acquiescence, thanked him, and the man before night was safe in prison. With this entire want of principle in many of the leading men, with a country full of ill-paid turbulent officers, the people yet hope that a democratic form of government 
can succeed. On first entering society in these countries, two or three features strike one as particularly remarkable. The polite and dignified manners pervading every rank of life, the excellent taste displayed by the women in their dresses, and the equality amongst all ranks. At Rio, Colorado, some men who kept the humblest shops used to dine with General Rosas. A son of a major at Bahia Blanca gained his livelihood by making paper cigars, and wished to accompany me as guide or servant to Buenos Aires, but his father objected on the score of the danger alone. Many officers in the army can neither read nor write, yet all met in society as equals. In Entre Rios, the sala consisted of only six representatives. One of them kept a common shop, and evidently was not degraded by the office. All this is what would be expected in a new country. Nevertheless, the absence of gentlemen by profession appears to an Englishman something strange. When speaking of these countries, the manner in which they have been brought up by their unnatural parent, Spain, should always be borne in mind. On the whole, perhaps more credit is due for what has been done than blame for that which may be deficient. It is impossible to doubt but that the extreme liberalism of these countries must ultimately lead to good results. The very general toleration of foreign religions, the regard paid to the means of education, the freedom of the press, the facilities offered to all foreigners, and especially, as I am bound to add, to everyone professing the humblest pretensions to science, should be recollected with gratitude by those who have visited Spanish South America. December 6th. The Beagle sailed from the Rio Plata, never again to enter its muddy stream. Our course was directed to Port Desire on the coast of Patagonia. Before proceeding any further, I will here put together a few observations made at sea. Several times, when the ship has been some miles off the mouth of the Plata, and at other times, when off the shores of northern Patagonia, we have been surrounded by insects. One evening, when we were about ten miles from the bay of San Blas, vast numbers of butterflies, in bands or flocks, of countless myriads, extended as far as the eye could range. Even by the aid of a telescope, it was not possible to see a space free from butterflies. The seamen cried out, it was snowing butterflies, and such was in fact the appearance. More species than one were present, but the main part belonged to a kind very similar to, but not identical with, the common English Callias edusa. Some moths and hymenoptera accompanied the butterflies, and a fine beetle, Callisoma, flew on board. Other instances are known of this beetle having been caught far out at sea, and this is the more remarkable, as the greater number of the Carabidae seldom or never take wing. The day had been fine and calm, and the one previous to it equally so, with light and variable airs. Hence we cannot suppose that the insects were blown off the land, but we must conclude that they voluntarily took flight. The great bands of the Callias seem at first to afford an instance, like those on record, of the migrations of another butterfly, Vanessa cardui. But the presence of other insects makes the case distinct, and even less intelligible. Before sunset a strong breeze sprung up from the north, 
and this must have caused tens of thousands of the butterflies and other insects to have perished. On another occasion, when seventeen miles off Cape Corrientes, I had a net overboard to catch pelagic animals. Upon drawing it up, to my surprise, I found a considerable number of beetles in it, and although in the open sea they did not appear much injured by the salt water, I lost some of the specimens, but those which I preserve belong to the genera columbites, hydroporus, hydrobius, two species, notaphus, sinicus, adamonia, and scarbarius. At first I thought that these insects had been blown from the shore, but upon reflecting that out of the eight species, four were aquatic, and two others, partly so in their habits, it appeared to me more probable that they were floated into the sea by a small stream which drains a lake near Cape Corrientes. On any supposition, it is an interesting circumstance to find live insects swimming in the open ocean seventeen miles from the nearest point of land. There are several accounts of insects having been blown off the Patagonian shore. Captain Cook observed it, as did more lately Captain King of the Adventurer. The cause probably is due to the want of shelter, both of trees and hills, so that an insect on the wing with an offshore breeze would be very apt to be blown out to sea. The most remarkable instance I have known of an insect being caught far from the land was that of a large grasshopper, Acridium, which flew on board when the beagle was to windward of the Cape de Verde Islands, and when the nearest point of land, not directly opposed to the trade wind, was Cape Blanco on the coast of Africa, 370 miles distant. On several occasions, when the beagle has been within the mouth of the Plata, the rigging has been coated with the web of the gossamer spider, November 1st, 1832. I paid particular attention to this subject. The weather had been fine and clear, and in the morning the air was full of patches of the flocculent web, as on an autumnal day in England. The ship was sixty miles distant from the land in the direction of a steady, though light breeze. Vast numbers of a small spider, about one-tenth of an inch in length, and of a dusky red color, were attached to the web. There must have been, I should suppose, some thousands on the ship. The little spider, when first coming in contact with the rigging, was always seated on a single thread, and not on the flocculent mass. This latter seems merely to be produced by the entanglement of the single thread. The spiders were all of one species, but of both sexes, together with the young ones. These latter were distinguished by their smaller size and more dusky color. I will not give the description of the spider, but merely state that it does not appear to me to be included in any of Latriel's genera. The little aeronaut, as soon as it arrived on board, was very active, running about, sometimes letting itself fall, and then reascending the same thread, sometimes employing itself in making a small and very irregular mesh in the corners between the ropes. It could run with facility on the surface of the water. When disturbed, it lifted up its front legs in the attitude of attention. On its first arrival, it appeared very thirsty, and with exerted maxillae drank eagerly of drops of water. The same circumstance has been observed by Strack. May it not be in consequence of the little insect having passed through a dry and rarefied atmosphere?
Its stock of web seemed inexhaustible. While watching some that were suspended by a single thread, I several times observed that the slightest breath of air bore them away out of sight in a horizontal line. On another occasion, the 25th, under similar circumstances, I repeatedly observed the same kind of small spider, either when placed or having crawled on some little eminence, elevate its abdomen, send forth a thread, and then sail away horizontally, but with a rapidity which was quite unaccountable. I thought I could perceive that the spider, before performing the above preparatory steps, connected its legs together with the most delicate threads, but I am not sure whether this observation was correct. One day, at Sainte Fe, I had a better opportunity of observing some similar facts. A spider, which was about three-tenths of an inch in length, and which in its general appearance resembled a citigrad, therefore quite different from the gossamer, while standing on a summit of a post, darted forth four or five threads from its spinners. These, glittering in the sunshine, might be compared to diverging rays of light. They were not, however, straight, but in undulations like films of silk brown by the wind. They were more than a yard in length, and diverged in ascending directions from their orifices. The spider then suddenly let go of its hold from the post, and was quickly borne out of sight. The day was hot, and apparently calm, yet under such circumstances the atmosphere can never be so tranquil, as to not affect a vein so delicate as the thread of a spider's web. If during a warm day we look either at the shadow of any object cast on a bank, or over a level plain at a distant landmark, the effect of an ascending current of heated air is almost always evident. Such upward currents, as it has been remarked, are also shown by the ascent of soap bubbles, which will not rise in the indoors room. Hence I think there is not much difficulty in understanding the ascent of the fine lines projected from a spider's spinners, and afterwards of the spider itself. The divergence of the lines has been attempted to be explained, I believe, by Mr. Murray, by their similar electrical condition. The circumstance of spiders of the same species, but of different sexes and ages, being found on several occasions at the distance of many leagues from the land, attached in vast numbers to the lines, renders it probable that the habit of sailing through the air is as characteristic of this tribe as that of diving is to the Argeronida. We may then reject Latriel's supposition that the gossamer owes its origin indifferently to the young of several genera of spiders, although, as we have seen, the young of other spiders do possess the power of performing aerial voyages. During our different passages south of the Plata, I often towed astern a net made of bunting, and thus caught many curious animals. Of crustacea there were many strange and undescribed genera, one which in some respects is allied to the notopods, or those crabs which have their posterior legs placed almost on their backs for the purpose of adhering to the underside of rocks, is very remarkable for the structure of its hind pair of legs. The penultimate joint, instead of terminating in a simple claw, ends in three bristle-like appendages of dissimilar length, the longest equaling that of the entire leg. These claws are very thin and are serrated with the finest teeth, directed backwards. Their curved extremities are flattened, and on this part five most minute cups are placed which seem to act in the same manner 
as the suckers on the arm of the cuttlefish. As the animal lives in the open sea, and probably wants a place of rest, I suppose this beautiful and most anomalous structure is adapted to take hold of the floating marine animals. In deep water, far from the land, the number of living creatures is extremely small. South of the latitude 35 degrees, I never succeeded in catching anything besides some barreau and a few species of minute Andromostracus crustacea. In shallower water, at the distance of a few miles from the coast, very many kinds of crustacea and some other animals are numerous, but only during the night. Between latitudes 56 and 57 degrees south of Cape Horn, the net was put astern several times. It never, however, brought up anything besides a few of two extremely minute species of Entromostraca. Yet whales and seals, petrels and albatross, are exceedingly abundant throughout this part of the ocean. It has always been a mystery to me on what the albatross, which lives far from the shore, can subsist. I presume that, like the condor, it is able to fast long, and that one good feast on the carcass of a putrid whale lasts for a long time. The central and intertropical parts of the Atlantic swarm with petropoda, crustacea, and radiata, and with their devourers, the flying fish, and again with their devourers, the bonitos and albicores. I presume that the numerous lower pelagic animals feed on the infusoria, which are now known from the researches of Ehrenberg, to abound in the open ocean. But on what, in the clear blue water, do these infusoria subsist? While sailing a little south of the Plata, on one very dark night, the sea presented a wonderful and most beautiful spectacle. There was a fresh breeze, and every part of the surface, which during the day is seen as foam, now glowed with a pale light. The vessel drove before her bows two billows of liquid phosphorus, and in her wake she was followed by a milky train. As far as the eye reached, the crest of every wake was bright, and the sky above the horizon from the reflected glare of these livid flames was not so utterly obscure as over the vault of the heavens. As we proceed further southward, the sea is seldom phosphorescent, and off Cape Horn I do not recollect more than once having seen it so, and then it was far from being brilliant. This circumstance probably has a close connection with the scarcity of organic beings in that part of the ocean. After the elaborate paper by Ehrenberg on the phosphorescence of the sea, it is almost superfluous on my part to make any observations on the subject. I may, however, add that the same torn and irregular particles of gelatinous matter described by Ehrenberg, seen in the southern as well as in the northern hemisphere, to be the common cause of this phenomenon. The particles were so minute as easily to pass through the fine gauze, yet many were distinctly visible by the naked eye. The water when placed in a tumbler and agitated gave out sparks, but a small portion in a watch-glass scarcely ever was luminous. Ehrenberg states that these particles all retain certain degrees of irritability. My observations, some of which made directly after taking up the water, gave a different result. I may also mention that having used the net during one night, I allowed it to become partially dry, and having occasion twelve hours afterwards to employ it again, I found the whole surface sparkled as brightly as when first taken out of the water. 
It does not appear probable in this case that the particles could have remained so long alive. On one occasion, having kept a jellyfish of the genus Dianaea till it was dead, the water on which it was placed became luminous. When the waves scintillated with bright green sparks, I believe it is generally owing to minute crustacea. But there can be no doubt that very many other pelagic animals, when alive, are phosphorescent. On two occasions I have observed the sea luminous at considerable depths beneath the surface. Near the mouth of the Plata some circular and oval patches, from two to four yards in diameter, and with defined outlines, shone with a steady but pale light, while the surrounding water only gave out a few sparks. The appearance resembled the reflection of the moon or some luminous body, for the edges were sinuous from the undulations of the surface. The ship, which drew thirteen feet of water, passed over without disturbing these patches. Therefore, we must suppose that some animals were congregated together at a greater depth than the bottom of the vessel. Near Fernando Naronia, the sea gave out light in flashes. The appearance was very similar to that which might be expected from a large fish moving rapidly through a luminous fluid. To this cause the sailors attributed it. At the time, however, I entertained some doubts, on account of the frequency and rapidity of the flashes. I have already remarked that the phenomenon is very much more common in warm than in cold countries, and I have sometimes imagined that a disturbed electrical condition of the atmosphere was most favorable to its production. Certainly I think the sea is most luminous after a few days of more calm weather than ordinary, during which time it has swarmed with various animals. Observing that the water charged with gelatinous particles is an impure state, and that the luminous appearance in all common cases is produced by the agitation of the fluid in contact with the atmosphere, I am inclined to consider that the phosphorescence is the result of the decomposition of organic particles, by which process, one is tempted almost to call it a kind of respiration, the ocean becomes purified. December 23rd. We arrived at Port Desire, situated in latitude 47 degrees, on the coast of Patagonia. The creek runs for about 20 miles inland, with an irregular width. The beagle anchored a few miles within the entrance, in front of the ruins of an old Spanish settlement. The same evening I went on shore. The first landing in any new country is very interesting, and especially when, as in this case, the whole aspect bears a stamp of a marked and individual character. At the height of between two and three hundred feet above some masses of periphery, a wide plain extends, which is truly characteristic of Patagonia. The surface is quite level, and is composed of well-rounded shingle mixed with a whitish earth. Here and there scattered tufts of brown wiry grass are supported, and still more rarely some low thorny bushes. The weather is dry and pleasant, and the fine blue sky is but seldom obscured. When standing in the middle of one of these desert plains, and looking towards the interior, the view is generally bounded by the escarpment of another plain, rather higher, but equally level and desolate. And in every other direction, the horizon is indistinct from the trembling mirage, which seems to rise from the heated surface. In such a country, the fate of the Spanish settlement was soon decided. The dryness of the climate during the greater part of the year, and the occasional hostile attacks of the wandering Indians, compelled the colonists to desert their half-finished buildings. The style, however, 
in which they were commenced shows the strong and liberal hand of Spain in the old time. The result of all the attempts to colonize this side of America south of 41 degrees has been miserable. Port Famine expresses by its name the lingering and extreme sufferings of several hundred wretched people, of whom one alone survived to relate their misfortunes. At St. Joseph's Bay, on the coast of Patagonia, a small settlement was made, but during one Sunday the Indians made an attack and massacred the whole party, excepting two men, who remained captives during many years. At the Rio Negro I conversed with one of these men, now in extreme old age. End of chapter 8, part 2